This message first aired on the radio on December 17, 2003. In Romans chapter 8, and we're in the very apex of Romans 8, I would call the climax of Romans 8 to be verses 16, 17, and 18, and I consider Romans 8 to be the climactic portion of the doctrinal dissertation that is the first eight chapters of Romans. And what we're discovering is how it is that the Holy Spirit works in us. And we want to find out the correspondence between the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Godhead, and we want to find the corresponding work between his work in us and the new nature that has been given to us as believers. And so we've discovered over the last couple of days that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now that's just one of the great works that the Holy Ghost did. Remember we read yesterday out of John 14, the Lord promised, the Lord Jesus, when he walked the earth, promised us that he would send another comforter, that is a comforter just like himself, who, by the way, is also an advocate, just like our Lord Jesus Christ is. He would send one just like himself, a comforter, to come to us, and who was then with the apostles, but would be in them. And so, since the time of the Lord's ascension, and his sending of the Holy Ghost, a child of God, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, has received the Holy Spirit in himself, and one work that the Holy Spirit does is bears witness with our spirit, that is, our born-again spirit, which is a new nature now that we have. He bears witness that we are the children of God. So one of the wonderful things about salvation is not only is it really there, it has really been accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation has been earned the old-fashioned way by our Lord Jesus Christ, and it comes to us freely through faith in him. But our salvation is real in that a new creation occurs inside the believer, and a new nature is given to the believer, and that new nature is able to communicate with God the Holy Spirit in such a way that God the Holy Spirit witnesses to us that we are the children of God, and we have an agreement inside of ourselves and a knowledge inside of ourselves that that is so. And that's why, when we want to find out if somebody has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can ask them what they believe. And they can tell us certain essentials that they believe, and they will have the witness in themselves, not only satisfying themselves that they're children of God, but they will also have a witness in themselves concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what it is that he has done. And this is a marvelous working of the Holy Spirit of God. It is contrary, by the way, to religious teaching. It is contrary to religious teaching. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church, for example, has invaded against the very notion that someone can have simple faith and confidence that they have eternal life, and they invade against that, and actually called upon others to consider such a person anathema, or that is, a damned to the lake of fire, accursed, according to God, for even thinking that they know that they have eternal life and that they're a child of God on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone. And that was the 12th canon of the Council of Trent, a heinous document in many ways, if believed, would rob anyone of the blessed satisfaction and assurance of eternal life in this world. Because God gives it freely, and he gives it to whosoever, the effectiveness of such robbery is doomed to failure. Not only does the Spirit of God 
bear witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, but we also have this heirship that is with God. We call God our Father. We have the spirit of sonship. And then if children, then heirs, heirs of God, but joint heirs with Christ. And now we have, and I'm spending extra time going over this section again in Romans 8:17 because it seems to be contextual and without controversy. There, I must tell you, there is a great controversy around this section of Scripture in Romans 8:17 as to exactly what it means. And there's a structure here in the language, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And that's just an explanatory clause, heirs of God, of where it says, if children, then heirs. But we have what's known as a mende clause in the Greek here, and I won't belabor that except to say that one good way of translating such a clause is to say on the one hand and on the other hand. There is a juxtaposition over of one clause over against the other one to contrast it or to set off, let's say, a different thought. It doesn't necessarily have to be a contrasting thought, but it is a different thought. It's either a further thought or it's a contrasting thought. But it is a separate thought, and we ought to pause and consider that we have two thoughts here. One, if children then heirs, heirs of God, that is one thought. But joint heirs with Christ, and that's another thought, if so be that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together. And we talked about suffering with and glorified with, and the sufferings of Christ and the glorification of Christ are often, nearly always, associated one with the other. This word, suffer with, it says we'll be joint heirs, or heirs together with. Actually, it's heirs by rule with him, lawful heirs with him, if we suffer with him, or co-suffer, and this word suffer here is the word pasco, the word for suffer, sum pasco, which is his passion. We have the word passion from that. And here is his passion, and this encompasses the passion that he endured for our sake. These are the sufferings of Christ, and it's correspondent to the new nature. After all, the new nature that we talk about here is a new man created in Christ Jesus. And so he is created after Christ Jesus. The new nature corresponds to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, we'll get a body that's fashioned like unto his glorious body. So when we see him, we'll be like him. And being made conformable to the death of Christ is the work of the new nature in the life. And the work of the new nature is to make us conformable unto his death. And we'll see that later in the book of Romans, but this is where the new nature is going. Remember, we found that the new nature that is given to us and the Spirit's communication to it has to do with leading us. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. These are the ones who are going to be presented as above the angels, for example, in a future day, just as the Lord Jesus Christ, as a man, has been elevated above the angels. And so here is a new birth, a new nature, and the new nature is giving a leadership. The new nature is led toward something and is not susceptible to the claims and the degradations of the lusts that are in our bodies that are in the old nature and its claims, 
Instead, we're going to be led. And now the obvious question, if you're going to be led by the Spirit of God, the question is, well, where will I be led? And the answer is, well, you'll be led to glory and unity with the Lord Jesus Christ, but you'll be led the same way that he also went. And what way did he go? He went the way of his passion and death. And so we have here this word, sum pasco. This has to do with the suffering together with Christ. And so we can look at how it is that he suffered. And no marvel, the seed truth of this is in the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ said, He that does not take up his cross daily and follow me is not worthy of me. Doesn't mean he's not mine. If you don't take up your cross daily, my brother or my sister, you're a disobedient believer, but it doesn't mean you're not Christ's. You are Christ's. It just means that you're not walking worthy. You're not worthy of him, and you don't walk in a worthy manner. This is no unusual statement. In 1 Corinthians, at the 11th chapter, where we're given instruction to remember the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that he appointed us, in the breaking of bread and the passing of the cup, which ought commonly be referred to as the Lord's Supper. It tells us to come in a worthy manner, which means it's possible for you to come in an unworthy manner. And what is a worthy manner? A worthy manner of coming there is to examine yourself, to make sure you're in the faith, to have your sins confessed so that they're forgiven, and so to make sure that you don't have any issues against other members in the local assembly or any offenses against God that you're regarding in your heart. And so you come in a worthy manner. You don't come as a worthy person. You come in a worthy manner. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, if we don't take up our cross daily and follow after him, if we are not being led according to the dictates of the Holy Spirit, and therefore joining him in his passion and rejection by the world, by the way, in the way of the cross, then we are not walking in a worthy way. We are not worthy of him. Now, if we are together with him in his passion, then we will be glorified together also with him. And then verse 18, I reckon, or I consider, and this is now the faith which we should follow. We follow the faith of the Apostle Paul and others who walk like him. I reckon that the sufferings, now here, a different word here. This is the word sufferings. And it's not exactly the word that means the beatings or the afflictions. It's not the thlipsis. It's not the way that physical suffering is placed upon us, for example, or physical adversity is placed upon us. But it's a general term for those bundle of experiences which has to do with the passion of Christ are visited upon us in this life. And notice that the assumption is that they are so visited. Now, we can speak particularly in this way about Romans 8 because we're cheating a little bit and we're reading ahead in the Scriptures, and we know Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. And I want to build the correspondence here for you so that you can understand why it is that I care to elaborate. After all, the Scripture is all harmonious with itself. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace are you saved through faith... And that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And you remember in Romans, we find that boasting is excluded because Abraham found that justification was by grace through faith. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. All right, we are his workmanship. This is his poema. We are his work. We are the work of his hands. We are his poem. 
maybe you want to refer back to the first snatch of poetry in the Bible here. In the image of God created he him, male and female, created he them. That's the first piece of poetry in the Bible. Here it says we are his poema, or we are his work, or his workmanship. But this has to do not with the creation of man and not with our birth. This has to do with the new creation. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Now God has created us in Christ Jesus. There is a new, if anyone is in Christ, corresponding to Second Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. There is a new nature, and that new nature has a direction given to it, a live spirit. That new nature can't sin, doesn't sin. That new nature believes the Word of God. That's why I preach to you confidently. If you have a new nature, this will appeal to you. And they'll find a place in you to where you can acknowledge that what I say is true, and the Spirit bears witness to you and with your spirit that you're a child of God. And the Spirit bears witness with the Scriptures, which are God's Word, God-breathed Word. And he bears witness that the Scriptures are true. And God has also created works. That is to say, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one by whom he framed the ages. God has arranged time and circumstance for you to walk by grace through faith into works that he has prepared, or good works that he has prepared. Now this does not at all change the principle upon which we operate. The fact that God has created good works for us to walk in does not at all change the principle by which we walk. In fact, it certifies the principle which we walk and gives us confidence in the principle by which we walk, because not only has God saved us, called us with a holy calling, and given us a new nature that operates on the basis of grace through faith, but we can walk with confidence knowing that God has prepared a way for us to walk in. So all we need to do is, if you want to say blindly, that's fine, blindly with the eyes of sight, but eyes wide open, the eyes of our heart or the eyes of our understanding, walking by faith, hearing a voice behind us say, this is the way, walk ye in it, getting the witness of the Spirit with the mind of Christ, having a mind tuned and capable to hearing God's Word and knowing His leadership, and walking confidently knowing that God has prepared a way for us and that we do not need to be discouraged by apparent circumstance or by common reasoning or by the rising up of the really pathetic attitude and mindset of that old nature which we have considered dead and consider ourselves dead to. I realize that's a lot to say, and I realize that's a lot to track, but my friends, it is the essence of the Christian life. And it comes down to this simple fact, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, remember how you've received him, Colossians 2, 6, by grace through faith, so also walk. Now it says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time. And here we have the word pathema, pathema, from which we get our word pathetic. And this is also the word that we came across, our old friend pathema, uh, we came across when we looked in Romans 7, and the apostle talked about the motions of sins. Maybe you were with us and you remember that. That is the pathema of sins, or the suffering of sins. Actually, it is the working out in the person, the sinful flesh. Sin has its course of life, we might say. 
Motions is kind of a good word, but sin has its course of life leading unto death. The new nature has its course of life leading unto glory. It is the Pasco. It is the way of the cross. It is the suffering with Christ. It's just unhappy that we keep using the word suffering, meaning a couple of different things. But this, where it says the sufferings of this present time, this would be the hostility of the world. This would be all of that enmity that is against the new nature. And it's a natural enmity. It is an enmity that cannot be overcome. It is an enmity that is always present. It is an enmity that will not go away. It is an enemy that must be destroyed. And the body of sin will be destroyed. And the vehicle by which sin works, the power of sin, the presence of sin, all of this will finally be destroyed. In the meantime, and that's what he's talking about, the present time, the meantime, consider that the sufferings or this antagonism against the new nature of this present time is not worthy to be compared to what finally, ultimately, consequently will be shown to us. And that's Romans eight eighteen. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall reveal literally to us. I think it should be translated to us. Obviously, that's in the future. Well, this is great thought. This gives us a real point of view. We need to maintain it, and I hope you can maintain it at least for the next, oh, say, 75 seconds while you listen to this message. Stood condemned, he took my place. He bore it all oh, that, that I might, might his presence live. This is John Malone. BibleStudy.net is the radio ministry of Millard Community Church. I believe the Bible teaches that the ministry of the Word of God should come out of the local church. What's the local church? Well, it's a geographically identifiable group of Christian believers publicly identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ and with one another. It's God's people called out and from the world. It is, according to the Bible, the pillar and support of the truth. If you need petroleum for your car, go to a gas station. If you want food, go to the grocery store, go to a restaurant. Do you want the truth? That should be found in a local church. Millard Community Church meets Thursday nights at 8 p.m. Sunday mornings from 10 p.m. We gather one block north of Q Street at 126th, which is also known as Oak Lane. You are welcome to practice your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ together with us. Will you come to the fountain free? Will you come? Tis for you and me. Thirsty soul, hear the welcome call. Tis the fountain open for all. Well, as promised, we're back to take up verses 19 and forward through the 25th verse, maybe even the 27th verse of Romans chapter 8. And we see now that direction is being given to that new nature, a direction by which we should walk. By the grace of God, by the way, we will walk. The great problem is we have the new nature. We have the Spirit of God communicating with that new nature. What is our problem? Our problem is we lack power. We need power. And thanks be to God, he has all the power that we need. We need. And, of course, that's what the Bible teaches us, that he has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to find them as we just carefully walk our way through Romans 8 here. We're going to find plenty of provision, plenty of provision. And this next section now, 
beginning with verse 19. I'm just going to read it. And let me say by way of introduction that I think there is a lot of good work that can be done here by the Bible student and maybe a student better than me. But I think that there is a lot said here. I think that the end of all things, the culmination or the bringing together of the end of all the things of the old creation is discussed here in ways that lend themselves to a very careful study. And maybe you're provoked to do that work or to pray that that work would be done so that we can hear more about it or learn about it. But let's look in Romans eight nineteen here. Let's have a listen. I'll just read along. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only, but ourselves also, which have the firstfruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then we do with patience wait for it. Now there's quite a lot being said here, and of course it's working its way. The scripture here, the thought of the epistle, is working its way to bring hope into our focus. Faith here has been cleared in our minds, or should be. We should be very clear about the matter that we're saved by grace through faith. That principle's not going to change. That principle is the way that we please God. And now we're going to see how faith works toward hope. As it looks, instead of looking backward and finding, and when it does look backward, finding the consolation of Christ, his death for our sins, now we look forward to also Christ. We look backward to Christ. We look forward to Christ. And in his coming, we see our great hope. And so we walk with the peace with God, looking backwards to the work that Christ has done for us, and we look forward in hope to having the peace of God, hoping and realizing Christ's work in us. And we move confidently, understanding our standing in Christ, having been justified, and we move to walking forward that we would have a blessed and happy state in Christ. And these are great thoughts that the Bible brings to our mind here in Romans 8. And these are distinctions that as we mature in our faith, we ought to be able to understand. And for that reason, these things are written. But here we are working toward hope. And as we have cleared the matter of our old nature and our new nature, the apostle now turns and shows us that this present time is not to be compared with the future time, because there's a future time coming when the glory of God will be revealed to us at the second coming of Christ, and that that is a larger thing than just the way you feel, and it's more than just me and thee. But in fact, it encompasses the entire old creation of God. And so in verse 19, we have a personification of the creation. 
and that's why I think the translators of the King James Version call it the creature, but it is God's creature, God's creation. It says, the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now we have the personification of the creation, and I guess in that sense, we are those who can be at one with nature, as it's so-called. Here it's called the creation. If you'll be happy enough, are contented enough to call nature God's creation, which is what it is, then you can see that the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. And so, in fact, here the intense longing of the believer, who waits also for the revelation of the glory of God, the Christian believer is here at one with the creation, in that it also waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, we know that we are the sons of God in our standing. We stand as the sons of God in Christ, who is above the angels. But our state is this state of misery here below. In fact, here it's called the sufferings of this present time. And when we talk about the sufferings of this present time, we now look out and see even in the creation, they show evidence of it. The creation shows evidence of it because it also waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. And then it tells us here that the creation was made subject to vanity. I find this word vanity to be a very interesting word in Scripture. It is the word mateiotes, and it's translated vanity here. But one has put this definition on it, and I really like it. One says, it is disappointing misery. Now, there is a thought, because one thing that you get as a Christian, child of God, you read the Bible, and if you go read the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll see that the preacher there in Ecclesiastes, he says, all is vanity in a chase after wind. Well, that's the Hebrew corresponding word to this word, also translated vanity, the disappointing misery that is the world system. And even the creation has been made subject to disappointing misery. Some here have found the second law of thermodynamics, which essentially states that the more highly organized a system is, the more quickly it loses energy, or tends to what fall apart as it loses energy. The more organized the system is, the faster it falls apart. That's a disappointing misery. Instead of getting more and more efficient, it gets less and less efficient. That's the creation made subject to vanity. And not willingly, it tells us in verse 20, as if, now, as I say, this is the personification of the creation, but by reason of him who have subjected the same in hope. Now, that is to say that God has visited upon the creation enough principle of operation, enough disappointing misery, enough vanity or disappointing misery, that it also waits for the manifestation of the children of God. It waits for the freedom of the glory of the return of Christ, really, what it waits for. And God has seen to it, he has put it into subjection to this disappointing misery. Now, who wants disappointing misery? No one does. Even the creation groans, it tells us, groaneth and travails in pain together until now. And this idea of groaning and travailing, being in pain, this is now the correspondence of the creation of God with the new creation in Christ that's in you, and it is there to elicit in us a complete and full understanding of how very true God is. 
This is marvelous stuff, and we're going to come back to it in just a minute. I hope you'll stay with us. Even the creation has been visited by this curse of sin. Of course, we know that from reading our Bible that God visited the curse of sin upon the earth instead of upon the man. And we know, it tells us, we know that the whole creation, verse 22, groans and travails. This word travail having to do with the giving of birth. This has to do with birth pains. And we have here a couple of more together. The creation groans together. It has birth pains together until now. I'm reminded, for example, of the Lord Jesus Christ telling us that prior to his coming, there will be earthquakes in various places, and there would seem to be more and more. And I can't think of anything that is more emblematic of the birth pains or the travailing of the creation than something like an earthquake, and where the intensity goes up logarithmically. And the Lord tells us that when these things happen, these will be the beginnings of the birth pains. I don't think that's going to happen in this present age, which is the time of the church, which is his body, even though they certainly will be increasing and have been increasing. But I think that even speaks to a day and a time yet future. But here we see that the whole creation groans and travails, or is in birth pain together. Of course, what's the birth the birth pains is for the second coming, or what's called here, it's not called here the second coming. In fact, it's called, in one place, the glory which will be revealed to us. In another place here in this chapter, it was called the manifestation, verse 19. The earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Not our standing, but the making plain and obvious by sight rather than by faith that we are the sons of God. And we get more specific here, exactly what it's looking for, as we find ourselves, as we say, at one with the creation here. It says, and not only, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. And that's what we have. The new nature is part of the first fruits of the Spirit. All the gifts of the Spirit are part of the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, the gifts have changed a bit. There used to be more evident gifts. There are gifts that have passed away. But there is gifting that has remained, especially the new nature that has remained to the believer. And I believe that God still gives gifts to his church, but those are not apparent gifts to people. They're not the ones that are foisted upon you by those who would deceive you. They're not the speaking in tongues, knowledge, or prophecy. Those have ceased, just like the Bible says they would. They're not healings, that has stopped, and they're not workings of awe or miracles. All those have stopped, but God still continues to give gifts to his church, and those are men, those are people, what he gives. He wraps them up in flesh and blood and gives them to the church, including he gives teaching shepherds to his church, for example. I believe God still does that. But here we see not only the creation groans and travails, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, or the sonship, the redemption of our body. And now we find that the redemption of the body is tied up together with that time. Now, maybe that's common knowledge to Christians today, but it's only common knowledge because it's been taught in the Scriptures. 
and uh, that much of the scriptures uh, has been given. And I would say that the common knowledge, or what oftentimes has been historically common knowledge to Christians, is becoming a bit uncommon knowledge today. But this corresponds with the details, which we'll see if we get to 1 Corinthians 15, that talks about the many details of the resurrection of our bodies in the first resurrection. And we correspond, we correspondingly groan. Uh, Those of us that have the first fruits of the Spirit, we correspondingly groan. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, we in these tents wait to be clothed upon from on high with our permanent houses or our oikaterion that is from on high. We desire to be delivered from the painful, sin-ridden vehicles that are our bodies now, and we know we'll be clothed upon with new bodies fashioned like after his glorious body, which is the redemption of our body wherein the dead in Christ will rise first with new bodies. We who are alive and remain until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ will be caught up together with them in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord when we see him, we'll be like him. And now all of that, therefore says, concludes into verse 24, for we are saved by hope. Now the question is, well, what do you mean saved? Now, what do you mean here, saved? I thought we already were saved from the penalty of our sins. And, of course, this is where we distinguish between our standing and our state. Our standing is in Christ. This will be clarified more to us in the book of Ephesians. But our standing is in Christ. Interestingly, our standing consists of being seated in the heavenly places in Christ. And that's our standing. And our standing is certifiable to us by the witness of the Spirit and by the fact of the Spirit's indwelling us and by the fact of the new nature, which is a deposit, as will be taught in Ephesians. It is a deposit of that which is to come. It is a earnest, it is the earnest money that we have so that we are not without hope. In fact, that is why we have hope. So now it says we are saved by hope verse 24. We now are born again unto hope. Our faith leads us to hope. So with God, all time is past, present, and future. But with us, we're in time, and the past has meaning, and the present has real meaning to us, and the future has a real meaning to us. God outlined time for our sakes, and he outlined time according to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are saved by grace through faith, and we are also saved by hope. And it's just a matter now of what is the context of what's being saved. We are saved from the penalty of our sins by the faith that we have placed in Christ already. We are saved by hope because we have a certainty about our future, which we look forward to. But we don't see it. We don't see it with our eyes. If we saw it with our eyes, it tells us we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for it? This is a very simple statement. We don't hope for that which is past or accomplished. We hope for that which is future. Now, all the work that needed to be done has been done for the accomplishment of the resurrection of our bodies and the redemption of our bodies, but, which, by the way, resurrection attaches to the redemption of the body, 
All the work has been done for the redemption of the body, but it has not been evidenced, and we have not the enjoyment of it yet. So whereas it's certain, it's not enjoyed, and therefore because we do not yet see it, we hope for it. Now it tells us, but if we hope for what we don't see, and that's a cinch, when I look in the mirror, the one thing I don't see is a resurrection body. I just see this old decaying body getting worse and worse. But nevertheless, that doesn't impact my hope because I hope for what I see not, and then I do with patience wait for it. The scriptures are intended to take us first into a backward-looking faith whereby we see all the work done for our redemption and then move us along to a forward-looking faith whereby we can walk by grace through faith in works prepared for us to walk in as our Lord Jesus Christ also walked. And when we look backward, who do we look to? We look to our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And when we look forward, who do we look to? Well, we look unto our Lord Jesus Christ, who not only is the author, but the finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, you see, something was set before him. There were works for him to walk in. He said, as he walked, he said, My Father worketh hitherto, and I also work. So, well, God rested on the seventh day, but then man sinned, and then God worked, and the Lord Jesus Christ also worked. So we look unto the Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who started our faith. He's also the one where our faith ends and becomes sight. Who for the joy that was set before him, now here's what he did. He had joy set before him, but he looked at the joy, and in so doing, he endured the cross. And that, my friends, is what the Christian life is. It is the enduring, the daily, every day, all day, enduring of the cross that is yours, that God has ordained for you to walk in, who endured the cross, despising the shame. And yes, friends, it is about the shame. It is about the shame that the world visits upon you because you identify with the Lord Jesus Christ and with those that are his. And, of course, that's what we're called to do. We're called to publicly identify with him, and we're called to publicly identify one with another as we identify with him. Despising that shame, we don't embrace the shame. We don't worry about the shame. That's what that means. We're not concerned about the shame that some may think and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's who we look to. That's how we look. That's the direction that we're given here. And we're going to find out a little bit more about the work of the Spirit of God as we continue in this study to help us walk that way. Won't you stay with us as we continue again tomorrow?